you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to continue our study of John's gospel today. We're going to focus on 18 down through 29, but I'm going to back up just for the sake of context to verse 16 to begin our reading. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. John 5, beginning in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, we need you. We need your spirit to be at work showing us these deep things, teaching us the lessons that we need to hear. God, unless you are at work, we will not have ears to hear or eyes to see. Shape us, encourage us, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This room is utterly full of imperfect fathers and imperfect children. Even those of you who aren't fathers had an imperfect father. One that you could other, utterly look at and say, and, and you see it with crystal clear, clear-headed reality, they were wrong. And many of us in this room are dads, and we enact that with our own families. We are imperfect. 
Yet that reality being said up front, the reality of sin and the fall, how important are fathers? How important is the role of father? Our society has seen time and time again the vital role of fathers with their children. It's a fascinating thing to study in sociology, just the question, how important are fathers? You'll find study after study, book after book, article after article, whether just raw data or analysis of the vitality of fathers. One such study in the University of Wisconsin states, quote, in numerous studies, positive father involvement is associated with the children's higher academic achievement, greater school readiness, stronger math and verbal skills, greater emotional security, higher self-esteem, fewer behavioral problems, and greater social competence than found among children who do not have caring, involved fathers, end quote. I don't think I've got to argue this point or belabor it to you. I think you follow along with that. It's displayed everywhere in our culture and society. As Christians, we should know this reality very deeply. We don't have to be convinced that this link between fathers and their families, wives, sons, daughters, we, we don't have to make this connection. Again, all of us, whether we have kids or not, have fathers. Whether that relationship has been good and life-giving and giving us all this stuff or it hasn't, we know the reality the vitality of a relationship father to children. Why are we built that way? Why this vital connection? Well, I think this text gets to the core of it. It gets to the core of what it means to be father and son. takes us to some great theological depths, and in some ways, this text will define much of the rest of John's narrative. Answering the question, who exactly is Jesus, and what is his relationship to the Father? What a great question. How vital is that for us to get? We remember the setting from last week. We were told that Jesus heals a man in Jerusalem. He was lame. He had been there 38 years. When Jesus came along, he was laying by this pool and he couldn't get in. Jesus asked him this insightful question, do you want to be healed? And what a great question for all of us today. When Jesus comes to us with all the power to save us, to rescue us, to take us from death to life, what a great question. Do you, do you want that? And his answer is kind of like have this superstition. I, I just can't get to the pool quick enough. So embedded in that is a yes. And Jesus says, get up, take your mat and walk. And he does. 
And then there's this surprising twist. You would think that a miracle like that, where everybody knew, everybody who had any proximity, any regularity in Jerusalem had seen this guy. You, you don't stick around somewhere 38 years without being known. And then everybody just applauded Jesus and everything went great, right? Now what happened? They ask him, hey, who told you to walk around with your mat? You're breaking the Sabbath. And the guy was willing. He was just like, Jesus, he did this. So then they come to him, and that's the, that's the background. That's the setting of our text. And rather than moving away, so they come at Jesus with accusation in their voice. Who told you you could do this stuff on the Sabbath? You're, you're breaking the Sabbath, Jesus. How dare you heal an invalid who's been laying by this pool, who's been laying around Jerusalem for 38 years? How dare you do that on the Sabbath day? What was Jesus' answer? My father's been working until now. I'm working. And they, it doesn't really land on us like it did on them. It should land on us. We should hear that and say, is making an incredible claim. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Before it said they were going to arrest him. Now all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Remember, part of what John is trying to do in his gospel is not only to convince us that Jesus is in fact God himself, God incarnate, God in flesh, but he's trying to explain ever so subtly, he's bringing us along this line of reasoning because this is the gospel going out to people who don't know Christ. And a question of those who don't know Christ is this, if he is God, how in the world does he end up on a Roman cross? Again, it's become so, so commonplace for us who get the gospel to not ask these logical questions. He is God incarnate, and yet he is, he is ending up on a Roman cross. He is going to die. He's trying to explain that to us. And the very core of his identity is what is getting him in trouble. And that is what he is going to explain in our text today. He's violating a very sacred principle to the Jews. This is what it means to be Jewish or an Israelite in their day. They organize themselves around the greatness of what we heard read earlier, the Shema. To hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's an inviolable part of what it means to be Jewish, one God. This is basic and fundamental doctrine for the Hebrews and for Christians that there is but one God. So once it lands on their ears, they think immediately he's calling himself another deity. The foundation of their charge against Jesus is clear. They want him dead because no one can be equal with God. 
And the rest of the text is Jesus' basic response to this accusation. He will definitively hold up strict monotheism. At no point will he deviate from the Shema. It offers three amen, amen statements by way of explanation what Jesus is saying. And it plumbs the depths of Christian and Trinitarian theology. Jesus will present a complete and utter vision of union with the Father and the Son, a unity that is utterly inseparable. Far beyond the broken relationships of us with our own fathers or us as dads with our kids, this is perfection. That's the way we'll organize our thoughts around these amen statements. The first amen statement of a truth or truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. You have to hear this if you're going to get it. Jesus, from the jump, limits himself. You're like, wait, he's not, he's not limited. Jesus is limiting himself. He's limiting himself. What, lim, limiting, limiting himself how? He can only do what he sees the Father doing. His will, his life, his actions are completely given over to his Father in heaven. Every single part of his life, every single action, every single word, every single movement and the trajectory that we'll see him take from here to the cross is going to be because he is doing the works of his father. You know what an apprentice is? There's a master at some skill, and this master at some skill will take on an apprentice. And then that apprentice learns by doing exactly what the master does. It's not the apprentice's job to get creative. It's not his job to deviate from what the master is doing. He knows nothing except what he sees the master doing. And then he's going to echo that in every part of his life. It's exactly what Jesus is saying about his relationship with the father. He is completely given over to the Father. And then he goes on to give us four um, because statements. It reads for in the text. And it just stands out in Greek because it's the word gar. And you see it again and again and again and again. And he's trying to show us what he means by this initial statement. I can do nothing on my own. I am following my Father in heaven's first four statement is in 19b. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus is only limited insofar as his heavenly Father. God in heaven is limited. How limited is God? Is there anything that he can't do? Of course, of course, there's tons of things that he can't do. He, God can never violate his own will. 
God cannot sin. David prayed it earlier. He can't even tolerate or see sin. It can't be in his presence. He cannot violate himself. So will Jesus ever violate himself or his father? No. No. So what is this deep connection in this first four statements? Whatever he sees the Father doing, that's what he does. The Father creates all things. And as we read in Scripture, so does Jesus. Whatever was made was made by the word of his power. The Father sustains all things. And so we read in Scripture, Jesus sustains all things. He keeps all things. The Father raised the Son in the resurrection. And the son reclaims his own life. He takes his own life back up again. The father and the son, using confessional language, are to be worshipped and glorified together. We could go on and on and on. We could add the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to this list. And here we could see the glorious beauty of the Trinity. One in substance, three in person, like father, truly, like father, like son. That's Jesus' first four statement. His next statement in verse 24, the father, because the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. This is truly an astounding reality in this text. What is at the very core and center of the union between the Father and the Son? What binds them together? For the Father, what? Look at the text. Look at verse 20. Here's the deep connection. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. That's why this connection is so beautiful and so tight. It's the love of the Father for the Son. God's fierce love for his son. That's the connection. Father to son accomplishing even greater works than the ones that we've already seen, just like Nicodemus marveled. Seeing the work of the father and son left his jaw drop. Jesus says, because of this connection, you're going to see greater things than me turning water to wine. You're going to see more beautiful things than me telling this, this lame man to just stand up and walk. Jesus is saying at the very core of his relationship with his father is love. And the reason he is here is to demonstrate, to show that love of the father to the people. Jesus is here to do the deeds of the Father in front of all the people. He's doing what John's prologue told us that he was here to do. He is here to literally exegete the Father for us. We can't see the Father. He says, look at me. In fact, later in John 14, we'll hear Jesus clearly state, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When we wonder about who God is and what in the world God is doing 
here on earth, what comes to mind? Here at the very heart of the Trinity, we listen to Jesus say that the core driving principle of his activity on earth is rooted in love. Do we hear that? The love of the Father for the Son? The love of the Son for the Father? And does that scream in in our minds also the reality of God so loved the world that he sent his Son? Right here in the center of Trinitarian theology is the notion that God loves his Son. And that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. We think of God as a God of love. Love is at the very heart and center of Trinitarian theology. And it's at the heart and center of the gospel itself. When you want to look around the world and ask what what is God up to, love is a great part of that. And not some intangible kind of love, but a love that is covered in blood. The death of the very Son of God and his resurrection to new life. That kind of love is what he's up to in the world. The third, fourth statement we have in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The core of the... The message, the core of the mission of the Father and the Son is resurrection and life for dead people. That's what the Father is doing. That's where all this love is going. It's not just, again, nebulous love. It's love that transforms dead people like you and me into people who have life in Christ. That's exactly his mission. That is exactly what he's up to. Last week we heard Demiron refer to this invalid by the pool as representing our spiritual condition, and that is absolutely the case. He's lying there by this pool with utterly no hope. Jesus is here to do the works of the Father, rooted and grounded in love, to look at that man and to look at people like you and me and say, get up. Get up, you dead person. You person that has no hope, you will never make it to that water, ever. That is superstition, and even if you did, it would not heal you. Get up. Hearing the word of Christ come to us. And truly, we will hear and see greater things than this. He will shout at the tomb of a friend, and death itself will come unrolled right there before our very eyes. Lazarus will walk out. There's a fourth four statement, verse 22. For because the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus will lead life-giving, and he will lead in bringing judgment. Judgment has been given from the Father to the Son. The Son has the prerogative in and of himself to judge the world. We're going to hear more later about judgment. The last verse of the statement ties it together and points us towards application. So that 
in order that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The honor due to the Father is the honor that is due to the Son. They are exactly the same. They are utterly inseparable. The warning comes in. The shot across the bow of the Jews bringing this accusation against him. And the shot across the bow of, to you and me today is this. If you do not honor the Son of God, you do not honor God. If you do not honor Christ, you do not honor God the Father. Because they can never be pit against each other. These accusers are claiming to defend the honor of God. And they are incredulous with Jesus, accusing him of actually dishonoring the Father. And Jesus' response is, if you do not honor me, you do not honor him. So what happens when you deny the reality of this inseparable union between Father and Son? We don't have to guess. Church history has given us so many examples. There was this elder, this presbyter in North Africa. Third, fourth century, his name was Arius. And Arius says that Christ is the first of God's creatures. He argues that there was a time in which only God the Father existed. And this is where we find very helpfully the, the councils of the church. The first council, the first Nicene Council 325 concludes the matter, seeing the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as one substance in three persons. We'll affirm this together today in our affirmation of faith. To see Christ in his essence as subordinate to the Father does not stop with Arius. In our day, in our own communities, the Jehovah's Witnesses are making the same vital mistake. They deny the full and complete deity of Christ and his equality with God the Father. They aren't committing a new heresy. They're committing a very old heresy. There are even some modern evangelicals hear me closely, who have diminished the role of Christ, arguing for the superiority of the Father over the Son eternally. They're saying that today. So they take a sociological situation and they argue their theology backwards and say, hey, if God wants us to act like this in the world, then he must have acted in a certain way back there. And so they upend Trinitarian theology. Hear me very clearly. That is dangerous. Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal in power and glory. Westminster Larger Catechism question 9 is helpful here. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, 
although distinguished by their personal properties, equal. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. Let's get it right. How can we apply this? Pay attention. Beliefs matter. It's not just the things we say, it's the things we think about God. Jesus, he's going there with them. He he is talking deep things with them very quickly because what we think about Jesus matters. Pay attention also to church history. It'll keep us out of the ditch of heresy. Oh, we should think of Jesus as somehow subordinate to or less than the Father. No, we can look at Arius and say, that doesn't end well. Our theology matters. The way we think about God matters. The fact that love is at the center of the tie that binds the Trinity together matters. Second Amen statement, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I think this is actually Jesus's own application of what he just said. In the middle of his Amen statement, he says, hearing the word and believing the word of the father gives eternal life. Hear and believe the word. We're given many clues to exactly what Jesus is saying here. The first clue is the exact text that they would have been thinking when they heard Jesus claim this connection to the Father. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have been attaching themselves to that statement. And Jesus is saying, hear my words. This is the counterpart text to Deuteronomy 6. Here it is in John 5. Hear the word and believe and have life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear the word, believe and live. This is the hearing that John has already clued us in on, especially with the Samaritans. Do you remember the end verse in chapter 4? It is no longer because of what you said, woman at the well, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. This is what is being commended to you and me today. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Hearing and believing is what matters. Do we hear the word of the gospel? Do we hear Christ beckoning to us, saying our name, and responding by faith? That's what matters. What is exactly does Jesus want us to hear? That whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's present. Life is offered to you now. Jesus doesn't say if you hear and believe, you can wait on pins and needles, and that one day in the judgment you will be given eternal life. It says you have it now. And then he goes further. He he goes into this judgment and condemnation What he says to those who hear the word and believe, uh, whoever does that does not 
come into condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Believers in this room, those who have put faith and trust in this Christ, you have already passed from death to life. You're like, but, but my body is wasting away. Yeah, but your salvation is sure. But people are dying every day of COVID. Yeah, but you will live eternally with Christ. Your condemnation day has already come. You're like, how can you say that? Because your condemnation was laid on Christ. That was your judgment day. Those who believe in this Jesus, you have already passed from death to life. Yes, you will die once and live eternally. That's what Jesus is offering to sinners today. He's telling us, sinners, sinners who fail in so many ways. As we said earlier, we fail to love God, we fail to love our neighbor. Terrible pasts, terrible track records. We're being told in this text that believing in Jesus passes us from judgment and death to life. That's us today. In Jesus, the future reality is also a present reality. It starts. We put our faith in Christ. Such a beautiful reality. Romans 8.1 expresses it well. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. We might be tempted to skip over this now no condemnation. I think we're quick to skip over that. The reality that we have passed from death to life. This is available today. And then we come to his third amen statement. Jesus expands on the themes of life and judgment. He goes to the deep nature of how life and death work within God himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, we hear Jesus talk about this hour. Jesus, what is this hour business you're always on about? It's redemptive time. It's eschatological time. It's time as, as big as it can possibly get. And it's, it's time as small as those hours where he hangs on a cross. An hour is coming. And it now is when people are going to make this transition from death to life. And then he plums the depths of the Trinity again. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. There's nothing that I can add more beautiful than what Calvin says about this verse. Listen to this, quote, God did not choose to have life hidden and as it were buried within himself and therefore he poured it into his son 
that it might flow to us. End quote. Isn't that beautiful? That's what this verse says. God has all life in and of himself. He wasn't up in heaven tapping his foot or clicking his fingernail, wondering what he was going to do with all this life. He is life, and that life was in the Son so it could be shared with us. Isn't that wonderful? God is life itself. And that life itself that's in the Father is also in the Son, and it's in the Son precisely so we can have life and enjoy it in Him today. Theology matters. Who God is in and of Himself matters, and it matters for Himself, and it matters for you and I. This is the heart and core of John's Gospel. Sinners being offered life in Jesus Christ. The end of this amen statement concerns resurrection and judgment. Jesus will do both. Look at 27 through 29. Let's read it together. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Very interesting. From the lips of Jesus himself, he says that one day there, there will come a voice, and at that voice, everybody's going to come out of the tomb. You're like, wait a minute, believers aren't raised. I, I just read right here that they are. But they're raised to judgment. <laughs> Listen, every single person who has ever lived will face Jesus. Every single one. Think about that. Cain and Abel. Samson. Ruth. Bathsheba. Alexander the Great will stand at the tribunal of God. Augustine, Gandhi, St. Paul will stand there. Malcolm X will see the face of Jesus. Martin Luther. Martin Luther King Jr. Joan of Arc, Michelangelo, Muhammad, William Shakespeare will stand before the courts of Christ. Joseph Stalin, Hitler will stand before our king. Steve Jobs will one day see the face of Christ. You and me we also will stand in his presence. Sometimes I think it's, we have this notion that it's just Christians who get life and they get the tomb, they get quiet peace forever. No, Jesus only talks about two ends to this whole situation. You're coming back, you're going to face him in his courts and belief in Christ and him alone will lead to life. A rejection of the same will lead to eternal judgment. Everyone will give an account before God. The question is, at the end of this text, what will that account be? What does obedience mean in John? What is this notion that he is pointing out here? 
the thing that he's calling us to time and time again from the lips of John or from the lips of Jesus is to believe. Believing is the obedience of John. The good news for us is God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through Christ, might be saved. This is, this is where all of this is going. He is coming to save sinners like you and me. So what are we going to do with him? Which side would you be on in the resurrection? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, for these statements, these great truths of your gospel. For these deep truths of connection between you, Father, and Son. Thank you so much for sharing this love and life that you have in yourself with us sinners that don't deserve it. Lord, even as we're confronted with these realities, would you help us anew to see and hear the great glory of salvation offered to us. Thank you for transferring us from death to life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.